as I continue to climb this mountain of enlightenment from my elders, uh, it is always cathartic to, you know, connect with somebody who continues to inspire his peers and the patrons who come to see him. It kind of dawned on me the other day when I was interviewing Joe Corsello, an incredible drummer from Stamford, Connecticut. You know, it's it's funny, you figure uh, you play with some of the highest echelon people in the world, like Sonny Rollins, and then all of a sudden it's kind of like, does the money even matter after that? Uh, you know, because it's about who are you playing with? What kind of spiritual quality, what kind of soul does the person have? And my Joe told me that my next guest is the one that really... Uh, it, it was it was balm and salve for him. It just it was absolutely healing uh, to be able to play with my guests, to go to those next levels of sound, to create new vocabulary on the bandstand, and most importantly, really never repeat themselves. And uh, my guest is in the same master discussion as Steve Grossman and Michael Brecker and Dave Liebman and you know dare I say John Coltrane and other cats like that, Joe Lovano, so many cats that continue to try to play with spontaneity in the moment uh, and be able to tell their own life story. George Garzon, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks for having me, Jake. George, it's an honor to have you, man. I, You know, I'm curious about um, if you could talk about, uh, you know, an early experience uh, seeing... Uh, John Coltrane uh, perform live, if that had an indelible impact on you? Well, first of all, I I never really got to see him because by the time I got to Berkeley, he was 68, he had already passed, and um, so I didn't have the opportunity to see him, but, um, you know, it was, I came into everything, not later, but when you know, the thing about Berkeley was that it really introduced me to what the current sound was. I mean, think about going to Berkeley College of Music in September of 1968. Uh, insane, insane. Hip, yeah, hippie. Um, I was introduced to uh, Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, uh, Mahavishnu, Herbie Hancock, Headhunters, everything at once and, and my head was spinning and I just you know, I was so, you know, I'm such a straight ahead guy. I was like, Okay, you know, let's just listen to all this and wow, this is really deep not realizing that my head was being twisted in every direction and then Woodstock and, and that whole thing and you know, I really <clears throat> If you don't mind me yakking, I grew up in a musical family of all saxophone players. My uncle Rocco was the head, you know, godfather, and he taught his sons and my uncle Joe. So they were really big bandish, Duke Ellington, Count Basie people, but it wasn't until I went to Berkeley that I was introduced to the real deal. And, and, you know, not to persona, but come to find later in life that I have the same birthday as Coltrane. Oh, my God. And, you know, I'm not bragging about it because I'm I'm such a slow, you know, I was never really a historian, but one day uh, in my apartment after I got married, oh, today we're celebrating the birthday of John Coltrane. I'm like, what? (laughs) It's my birthday. I called my my mother and I said, Marty, 
realize you had me on the same day as John Cole? Yeah, I, I planned it that way. Italian moms. But hey, I want. I want. I want. I'm glad you brought that up. Are you going to tell me that your uncle was it? Uncle Rock was it? Rocco was your uncle? Uncle Rocco. Uncle yeah. Rocco and Big T. Did did, did were they close? Big uh, Tony Lovano. The thing is, uh, Jay, I'm telling you, man. When oh I my met God. Levano, when I met Lovano, it was a stereotype. No one knows this, and, and he's cool. But I got the gig with Tom Jones after, the, like, a few months after I graduated. Oh my God! And then about six months later, Joe was playing with uh, Lonnie Smith, and he was off, and, and we needed a tenor player. I think I was on alto. I don't know what it was. I said, Joe, Joe, you want to come? on the ski he's like absolutely so we were playing in Cleveland and his Joe wasn't even there he was out and Big T picked me up oh my god and this cat hung with me 24-7 and uh, uh, when Joe was there I know I'm skipping around no no it's fine it's fine all right, so I, I was playing with Tom before Joe came on, and Joey picked me up, met Big T, and, you know, I walk into the house, I open the door, and the first thing I smell, it's a Sunday afternoon, first thing I smell is tomato sauce, <laughs> right? So mom's cooking the sauce for the spaghetti, I'm like, wow, this is deep, yeah. right? So we sit down, we eat, and, I'm, you know, we're stuffed, drinking vino, blah, 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 and I'm like, all right, let's go chill out, and... Joe's like, no, no, let's go down and play. All right. So I'm sandwiched in between Joe and his dad. Oh, my God. And these guys destroyed me. <laughs> you know, at that age, I was still getting my shit together, you know. And he, to see father and son lunge eat at each other and going for it, and they just squeezed me out of the middle like a tube of toothpaste, you know. Oh. It was... It was incredible. And after Joe, Joe went up the next day, and Big T picked me up every day, and we hung like crazy. And he gave me a haircut, and it was the first time I ever went to a barbershop and I heard Miles Davis on being played. Dude, I have like, I have like, I have like, my, 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 I have like goosebumps from this story. Are you telling me that you were really not that hip to what we would consider jazz before you met them or were you, where were you, where were you at uh like in your musical tastes uh, i'll give you the rundown quickly so i the first person i met in high school was in the band was this kid rollins ross and he's like dude i like the way you play come home and meet my brother eddie and these kids were you know these were came from a black family very distinguished and he liked the way he played, and they took me into the family, and we started a James Brown cover band, <laughs> right? So, this is great, a, dude. I'm just giving it a yada yada, but it was No, I love it. I love it. Overnight sensation, and we were hitting like crazy, but we were so young that we couldn't try, so the father... His father was really like a serious cat. He said, fellas, I'll drive you around. I'll get these gigs. So we were gigging. And we were only like 16, 17. One day, Pops comes home. He says, fellas, I got a gig for you next week, next month at Worcester Polytech. Oh, what's that, Dad? Oh, we're going to open for Sly and the Family Stone. No way. And we're like, what? Oh, think my about, God. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, think about being 17. 
and we're opening for Sly. We're not even giving it a second thought because the drummer, Eddie Ross, was so good. He could play Fatback and sing at the same time. And the kid was a bad mold. Oh, my. Wait, hold on. This was like 66 or something? What was... Yeah, 67-ish. Wow. You know? Wow. So we're down in the dressing room with Pops, and Sly and the cats come down, and they look at us, and, and, and they do with that, that expression like, what? Are you <laughs> kidding me? And we went up there and kicked their ass. And wow. Went, <laughs> so, wow. Had his, um, that after, is so classic. Which was a tech school. After that, I went to Berkeley. And, um, uh, tell me what we talked about. I went to Berkeley and I realized that I took the backbeat from James Brown into playing jazz and I, I realized that I had been spending my life teaching these kids how to swing on one and three. <laughs> like, they all, you know, you listen to, you know, Warren Marsh and Sonny Rollins and, you know, all the old Absolutely, kids. yeah, yeah. And that's why this shit is so killing because you're swinging on the downbeat. That's that is a really interesting point. Wow. Yeah. Well, hold on. I just don't want to... You're, you're, so you're, you're playing... <laughs> You're playing James Brown cover tunes, but but I, I just want to get the chronology of of uh, of Big T. Uh, at a certain point, um, like you had not heard Miles Davis before you got that that haircut. Uh, but yeah, by the time I got that haircut, I was at, at four years in Berkeley. Okay, so you were already you were already ensconced. You were already there. Yeah. So, so what I'm getting at is that you know think about going into a haircut, you hear like. Uh, top 40, rock and roll, stuff like that. And you walk into Big T's place and you hear Train and and uh, Miles Davis. You know, it was just, it just caught me, you know. Dude, that's and right. That's I forgot he was a barber. That's right. Okay, so he was rocking those tunes in there. Yeah. So, oh. and that's when I realized the legacy, the relationship that Lovano and I had. Like, Joe was much stronger than me. I mean, when he came to Berkeley, everybody's like, oh, you got to go here. This kid, Bolivar, is for a Pomeroy's band. So we all go down, and we're waiting and waiting and waiting. He takes, Herb gives him the last solo of the last tune. This kid blew so heavy. He sent me out crying. I was literally in tears. Oh, my God. I never heard anything like that. The next day, I'm, I'm practicing giant steps on clarinet, and I hear this monster next to me. All of a sudden, my door swings open and almost hits me. And this guy goes, man, what are you practicing? I go, dude, is that you? What are you practicing? He goes, hi, I'm Joe Lovano. And that was the beginning of this love relationship of music. Dude, I am loving this. This is so beautiful, man. I, I... So you get to, I mean, the thing is this, like, uh, when you got to Berkeley, was it still called the Schillinger House at that time? No. No, but they, I think they changed around, not to be exact, 50, 55. And um, you get there, and I just want to know, I mean, not. can you talk about, being that you're sort of, it's just funny, because I've interviewed cats that they get a nice paycheck, and I'm glad they can sing for their supper through the academy now, um, but they'll, they'll be very candid about how they're hamstrung, in terms of teaching and, and how it's so different from their own learning style, how they were taught. And I just wonder, like, 
looking back, Herb Pomeroy had a big band. The Jazz Workshop was, was there. Paul's Mall. There were all these places. The Combat Zone. I mean, do you feel like... Um, and so many of the cats that I've talked to didn't even graduate because there was so much work. And now, now today it's like this cookie-cutter sort of assembly line. You graduate high school, you go to college, sort of like what we talked about yesterday, no real bandstand experience. I mean, how, how have you tried to be as authentic as possible as a teacher knowing that your students are not going to be... Um, I mean, you opened for Sly Stone in high school. You were nobody. That's that would never happen today. <laughs> You're funny. All right. First of all, going back to Uncle Rocco. Yeah. He was he was really good friends with Joe Viola, who was my mentor, and Joe Viola was the master teacher. He was the protege of Marcel Mule. Wow. Who was a French classical guy. So they did a little goomba thing. And <laughs> my uncle Rocco called Joe, say, "Joe, how you doing?" Um, my, my nephew, George, he's, he's blowing me away, so can I send them to you? And I was still in high school, and that was unheard of for anyone to be able to study with this guy while he's still in high school. And Joe was like, yeah, that's okay, let him come in. So I, was, I had a year while I was still in high school studying, and my father used to drive me every week. Oh and, um, and then... You know, so I had a year prep, and then I started to succeed. And Joe could tell. I mean, I, I, you know, I was getting my act together, but Joe could tell there was something there, and then he got me into Berkeley, and um, so that I was by his side for four years. I never studied with anyone else. I, I think I studied uh, flute, oh, clarinet with Andre Lazard was like the principal for the BSO. This guy was like a French cat with the goats. He used to laugh at me every week. Oh my and God, they, dude, I have never, they, this is I, ridiculous, dude. Yeah, so I'm, I'm playing, which I'm playing a clarinet again. I got, I got too much to tell you about. Yeah, you got so I much, cla- it's I'm, unreal, I'm, man. Yeah, so I'm, I'm playing a clarinet every week and he's laughing at me. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Jesus, this guy thinks I suck. Come to find I was his best student. Wow. I found out later from Matt Mavulio, one of the heads of the performance, and I said, Matt, this cat used to laugh at me, yeah, because you were his best student. Like, right. Are you kidding me? Said, yeah. He told me about you all the time. Like, I mean, wow. it's, it's like some sort of Zen mastery that, you know, he's just trying to get in your head, or I don't know what was going on. I mean, that. Well, I mean, did those guys, those guys, how did they teach you? I mean, they didn't. They're, like, we're talking now, but, I mean,. Was it more nonverbal leadership? I'm just curious about how, and it's just not you. It's like the idea that there was some kind of self doubt there because you thought he was laughing at you because he thought you, you thought he he thought you sucked, but actually, you were his best well, dude. I thought he thought I sucked. Right, exactly, exactly. You know, I mean, you know, when you're I'm only like 17, 18 years old, Jay. You know? Sure, sure. But um, Joe Viola was a mystic. And I, you know, I studied with Zen masters since I was 28. And I realized later in my life that he was like the Buddha. And just sitting next to this guy, even if he wasn't saying anything, I was like, damn, what's this vibe? Wow, dude, this is insane, bro. Joe Viola, man. Why why am I not tracking that cat? That is unbelievable. 
Yeah, just look him up. He was one of the mainstays when he came into Berkeley around 1950. Wow. You know, 55. You know, I'm not exact, but he really started that place. He and her upon where John LaPorta. Right. Um, all these heavy cats. Uh, Ray Santisi. Yeah, Ray yep. Santisi. And so Joe took me under his wing because, like Lovano, these cats had the insight to see where I was going. Maybe not at that point, but because I remember Joe, <laughs> so the people could hear. Just I want them to know that you know if you're getting your shit together, that's good. You, you're gonna work at it. I remember Joe. The first lesson, he's like, "Ah, George, let me hear play something." He goes in the bathroom in his room and shuts the door, and then he says, "All right, George, let me hear." And I start playing. Once he heard my sound was cool, he came out of the bathroom. Right? Wow. You follow, you follow me? Um, then, once in a while, like if I was, you know, screwing up, he'd hold his ear and go, oh, Georgie, what the hell are you playing? Because <laughs> he felt loose enough with me because, you know, of this family connection, you know? Like he could say anything to me, you know? And, and, and it really, I learned so much from that guy about sound. Sound. About Let's talk about that. I want you to talk about. This is so important. First of all, he he felt he he told you he told you what you what he didn't tell you what you wanted to hear. He told you what you needed to hear. Uh, but sound. I want you to talk about that because the entire thing. We going back to when you first got to Berkeley. Yes, your head was spinning around because there was this intermeshing of music. Uh, and there were just sheets of sound everywhere. Now, Viola was from a different era, a little bit, but what did he teach you specifically about sound expansion? Well, even before him, I mean, I grew up, the sound you hear me now is a family-given sound. It was given to me by my Uncle Rocco and my cousin Richie. And growing up, I mean, I, I started taking lessons believe it or not, in the back of his pizza shop. <laughs> I would go every week after church and then Sunday school. My father would drive me and I'd have a lesson with Uncle Rocky while he was spinning pizzas. And he's throwing these pizzas oh at me. Oh my God, this is so Screaming at me because I would never practice. <laughs> and, um, so he's spinning these pizzas and screaming at me. I was only nine and I'd run out of the back Dad, let's get out of here. Uncle Rocco's trying to kill me. He said, no, no, it's all right. And he pushed me in here. And Uncle Rocco said, get in here, you little son of You know? So, and then when I would go home on Sunday to eat, I had all this flour all over me. Absolutely. Right? Yep. And no one ever said anything because they knew I had just come from Rocky's Pizza Place. You know? So, the sound originally... <laughs> I know it sounds like No, a, no, this is the great I mean, dude, it's Was there like Yeah, so what was that That sound was like Sort of more like Old world um, Or was uh, Italian music Or like I remember Sorrento Or I, I, I or, uh, or was I it I just did a I just did a record With Claire Daly And it's called The Vuvu for Francis uh. And it's about the Vuvu You know Like you hear these old cats Shawnee Hodges Right you know, Marsh, uh, Coleman, Hawkins, they're like, oh, woo, 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 woo. and the, I grew up listening to that, and that's what my ear adhered to, because by the time I was 12, 
I was able to go out and play weddings with the family band. Wow. So I was sandwiched again in between these people that had sounds. And I, your ear gets a tone to that, you know? That's right. So, so I, I just have to sound. And not to trip, but we just did the next Fringe CD after 15 years. Wow. And this whole record is all about that sound. It's, was there it's was there was there an accordion in the Garzone family band? Yes. Wow. There was accordion. My cousin Bobby played bass, uh, piano and drums. Richie played saxophone. Uncle Joe played drums. Then we had intermittent people. John uh, Frankie Damari played guitar, and Johnny Clegg played trumpet. And we had all these people in Boston that loved these people, the way these people played because they had sounds and we I mean think about being 12 years old running around with like a couple hundred dollars in your pocket every week no I can't believe it it's insane it's in, and that was like that's like a thousand dollars today <laughs> and everybody everybody wanted to hang out with me <laughs> yo the man's got money dude he's got dough man he's got cash but you know so then back then Jay, this is important back then you go to a wedding now it's like a show band but back then the first couple of gigs I didn't even play my Uncle Rock was like alright you to sit in this chair next to Uncle Joe and just watch this thing go down so they go from tune to tune right and every time they wouldn't even yell out the name of the tune they put one finger up or two fingers down, oh. up meant sh the sharp key, down meant the flat key, and they would just barge into the next tune regardless of the key, and that transcension from one key to the other, even if it wasn't kosher, I think that's what, what I heard as being the beginning of the fringe. Wow, dude, that that is so powerful. So let's and, go 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 deeper on. I, I really all right, this so, is so important. So let's say you know not to get all technical, but let's say you're in the key of B flat, all right, and then you go to the key of G. You're talking about uh, you know two flats versus one sharp. I mean, it's pretty radical. That's right. You know, That's like, right. Right, and no one, the people kept dancing. No one had ever said anything. I love this. Um, oh my god! And it was this this little harmonic clash for about a bar or two <clears throat> in between the keys. And I think that's where my ear started to relate to avant-garde music because I didn't even know where what it was until I went to Berkeley and met Bob Galati and Rich Appleman, who were the beginning of the fringe. And we all went to college together, and Bob's like, man, why don't you come on my pad, we'll play. So um, we we would do, you know, back in 71, 72, we'd do Blue Boss, a recorder, man, and then one day we drank a little bit too much vino, we took a left and never returned. Wow. So you were doing, like, uh, Joe Henderson tunes and things like, yeah, yeah right. Standards. But, but Bobby was much more versed. These guys, you know, they really had their shit together in terms of what to listen to. He hit me some art ensemble, uh, Mingus, uh, right. you know, Ornette Coleman. I mean, think about listening to science fiction. I had never heard anything like that. That, that record science Yeah, that's right, that's right. To, so so Gala, they were students or were they already on the ground? As yeah. Wow. No, we all met at Berkeley. 
I met Bobby. I met Bobby at a, on a top 40 gig at the Holiday Inn. And he got me on the gig, actually. So we're going to gig and we're playing pop tunes. I'm like, damn, this kid's killing me. <laughs> Man, you sound great. Like, this is unbelievable. Like yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, it really, it's, it's the history of of my life. It's cosmic um, history. It's cosmic history. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's incredible. So I met Rich Appleman, who was in, they were music editors, and I wasn't. So they, they said, come on, let's play. And Rich picked me up in his old checker cab. We went out there, and, you know, we started playing, and we were doing tunes, and then we took a complete left, and that was it. Okay, I want I want to I want to talk to you going back to the to the wedding bands because this was not like some like show band where it was a performance. These guys were burning tune into tune. Didn't you? And so what you're saying to the audience is that by them merging tunes that were harmonically dissident for a minute, um, it it allowed your ears to grow to the point where you realized that I guess as the old Miles line was that there are no wrong notes. Thank you. Yeah. The unknown right. is where the known is found. You know, people are too safe now. Right. Um, right. The unknown is where you find the known. And you've got, I'm trying to teach these kids how to be strong about going there. Don't worry about what your friends are going to think about you because you don't want too many friends. <laughs> Hold on, Brother Garzone. This is so... so but can that be taught? To me, you were the flower from the pizza shop. They were screaming at you. You thought you were going to get killed. They're like, get back in there. I mean, we live in a much more tender society now. You can't, I just wonder if that can be taught because that to me is more like, that's coming from the primordial gut. That's coming from like a level of consciousness where, like you said, you don't care if you have one friend or not. Yeah, I, I, I made a card uh, back then when you had calling cards. Right. And, and I, I put a picture of me smoking this big stogie because the old man used to take me to the track oh. all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all, everybody, Corsello, all the, all the dying cats can relate. And, and I, I made this card and it says, Gigi, how you doing? No, how you doing? Don't call me. And I Like a mofo because they thought I was working my brains out. I had the I had the cojones to do something like that, you know. Oh, so and, I want you to talk about how you get how you try to get because it's so important, man. Like you guys are the last vestiges from that the essence of that time where the unknown you have to go into the unknown to 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 get to the known. How how do you try to set the table for these guys? So that they feel comfortable doing that sort of plunging into the on the insecure path. Well, it's pretty simple. Studying with the Zen masters since I was twenty-eight and meditation, moving form. You have to believe in yourself because you have no one else that you can count on. Right. And I just told Levano the other day. I said, Giorgio, I've known you since we were eighteen. If you have two friends, you can count on your way ahead of the game. Wow. So wow. Trying, to teach, trying to teach these kids through the music um, and my the triadic chromatic approach that you can step outside of the harmonic continuity and I figured out how to do it. And you got to understand, this band 
has been together, the Fringe, for 50 years. And these kids have been coming since we started in 75, playing every Monday night or Wednesday night. And I just talked to Tane. Tane said, yeah, man, I remember coming with me and Josh Redman. We used to take the train <laughs> all the way from from Boston to Somerville to here, you got me. What? Are you kidding me? Yeah, we used to come in the snow and shit. Just to ask, like, wow, that's deep. So these kids were coming. I mean, you know, you think about all the guys that I had Josh Redwood, Seamus Blake, Donnie McCaslin, Chris Cheek, uh, Mark Turner, right. uh, T.O., you know, all the cats. And they would come out. They were kids, they were unknown. They were just kids coming to check this shit out. And then later, when these guys blew up, you know, uh, Walter Smith, who's my boss now, you know, at Berkeley, these guys are heavy. You know, these, that's the lineup of heaviness that listened to what I said and then took what I gave them and went off and had developed their own voice. You know, so the thing about these kids is I'd be screaming at them every day for 50 <laughs> years and then they'd come on Monday night right. to hear how it goes. You guys were. You guys had. I'm sorry. You got a. You had. You guys have had a steady gig in Somerville. On where? What? What club? Well, it bounced. At first, it was Michael's Pub, which was across the street from the uh, NEC, New England Conservatory. Right. And I'm telling you, every week those cats would come on. Miroslav Vitus was the head. He would come every week. Jackie Byer. Oh my God! Wait, was Byer sitting in with you guys? Well, dig it. We were so young, and and you know. Think about what you were doing in the 70s. I, can, I am losing my mind. This so, is insane. So yeah. These guys would come in and we just play. And then Jackie comes up and says, Guys, how you doing? Man, can I sit in? Absolutely, <laughs> Here, let me open the piano. He says, No, I brought my alto. Can I play? Absolutely. Yeah. And I have a tape somewhere. No, no, he was playing alto. With the fringe, yeah. I thought that maybe... He'd be like, yo, I, I, I got to, let's get a, a second trap set up there. Because Mark Levine told me that Jackie could play drums, too. Oh, so, that is so, I mean, so you're talking about a shaman musician, like already playing for 20 to 30 years, walking into the club and wanting to sit in. I mean, I, I, that to me is just like, I don't know. I mean, what this is, this is what I'm trying to get at, because I'm not trying to like oversimplify this, because part of this is just sort of, the, the gifts that you've been given in this life, but, I mean, Mark Levine, rest in peace, when he was there, oh, do, by the way, please don't let me forget to ask you about Don Elias, I noticed you played with him, um, okay, so, Mark was like, he wasn't even at Berkeley, he would just, he was in a salsa band with Perla and Elias, and then he would go and take lessons with Jackie, and he'd be on the piano, Jackie'd be on the drums, and Jackie would be like, all right, let's play Cherokee in all 12 keys. And so, they, you know, he'd run through it, A, B, and then by, like, you know, G or you know, whatever, F, he, he, Mark would fall apart. And uh, Jackie would just say, okay, that's it for this week. You know what you need to work on? I'll see you next week. It was a 10-minute lesson. His, it, was, it was just like these guys' ears, and, that, and that's the whole thing. I mean, is it fair to say that – Unfortunately, just younger cats, I'm 45, my daughters, younger cats, they, we've been corrupted by the quantized rhythm of electronic machines. Is that why those cats' ears were so big back then? Because it was just pure human sound? 
you know what it is, Jay? You know what killed all of this? Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Really? Well, because I tell these kids, before you put shit on any of that, listen to what you're doing. Because once you do it, if that isn't happening, you're going to get marked. So they're so hot about being on Instagram. They don't care what they sound like. They just go on. And I work my butt off with these kids. And then some of these kids, when I hear them on there, oh, here's my new two five lick. And I worked really hard with them. But they're just more into the Hollywood aspect. Right. Where, you know, I'm not knocking it. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying where these people in general have taken it. And they look at you like this is the shit. And I just can't say anything because... Every time I open my mouth, you know, something bad goes down. No, that's no. Listen, I want to be clear though. You feel like almost in like a monk or a, almost a Zen kind of way. Do not share your craft until you have become completely refined in some respect, or don't even share it at all. Well, share it when you feel it's ready. But these people are too. To be known, they want to get out. Right, they want to be right. Known. They want to be famous. There's no Hollywood in this shit. Right. There's no Hollywood. You listen to cats. The Hollywood to me is Lovano, Brecker. Yeah. Not, I don't mean Hollywood in a glitter. No, I dig. I dig. I dig. I dig. Like my mentors are all around me, and, and again, how, why, why, and how it happened to me is really. A, a blessing and a miracle because Bregonzi lives here Levano comes up here to teach Michael Brecker I was close to Frank Tiberi lives 10 minutes from me and um, oh my. they put they put God in my backyard I mean, and, I, and he's 95 still teaching in Berkeley and you know he was one of the main focuses for me as far as getting outside I'm on a continuity and anyone he came in touch with on Woody's band he infected like Lovano and John Nugent uh, Gary Anderson all these cats so people I think what's happening is people are more concerned about being famous too quick rather than figuring out what their voice is they, they kind of jump on the bandwagon you know I want to go deeper on this fringe thing with Galati and uh I mean, Brother Garzon, you know, so many, like even for me, as a non-musician, but as somebody who wants to raise the collective consciousness of the entire uh, club or venue, you know, a lot of times uh, I have to be like, I have to get out of my own way to allow, to become a conduit for inspiration. And I just wonder, like, when you were first, obviously you, you got so much uh, street scholar experience from Uncle Rocco and, you know, obviously Viola and, you know, but with the fringe, you know, I, I saw some ridiculous videos online of, of early fringe. Did you have long black hair at that time? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cause I was like, that's not him. That's not. And then all of a sudden I see, well, and then I'm like, it's him. Did you see the Fringe live at the Regatta Bar where we dressed as Neanderthal? Yeah, man? no, I saw this tune called the Neanderthal Man. Yeah, and it was it was next level. I said, dude, this sounds hipper than any. 
I mean, this is, it sounds totally mod. It sounds contemporary. It's insane. I mean, you know, let me just not to get dark or anything, but being from Boston has a, almost a, a negative con- connotation because people don't look at this town as, you know, as a strong playing place. But all these cats that are doing it now, and I'm not knocking them, all these cats came through Berkeley. Right. Came through Boston, right. study with Bill Pierce, study with myself, study with Provenzi, and moved to New York. Um, and there's a strip, the shit here in Boston is so strong, it's comparative to New York. It's just that New York is such a demonstrative figure. Um, and I stayed because well, my family was here, and I could see early on, and I'm not really a business person, but I could see that Berkeley was going to be the master power of the teaching industry, and I was right. And so I stayed here. I had the fringe, and, you know, we played free. The kids were taking lessons. They were coming to hear us. Now, you know, then I started teaching in New York, and for 17 years I went back and forth teaching at NYU, school, MSM, uh, all of that, and had the you know, luxury of playing in both cities. So I, I learned a lot about business through watching how Lee Burke and his father, <clears throat> Lawrence, ran this place. Really? And, and I said to myself, you know, I'm going to stick close to this guy. And I was right because everybody's up coming up here teaching and then one day Liebman said something to me <clears throat> excuse me so I, that went over my head he said you know guys oh, you figure it out what's that mean wait what did he say he, he, I said he said guys oh, you figured this out didn't you early on I said what's that he said the mountain came to Muhammad <laughs> I was like what Jake <laughs> two weeks to figure out what the hell he was talking yeah, I know. about you know I'm it's all right. Yeah, who cares? Yeah, come on, man. Yeah, I did. Well, yeah, but, you know, it was a dunk, and I was like, then I got it, you know? And so I stuck by this place for a lot of reasons, because they let me be myself. They never questioned the triadic approach. All these people were coming in, in fact, to the point where when the accreditation board came in, uh, Roger Brown, the president at that point said, George, I want you to come and speak to him. I said, why, are you kidding me? You want me to speak to him? Hello? He said, no, no, we like the way you speak, right? So then one day they're coming down the street, and like, oh, no. And he grabs me, and he says to the accreditation board, um, this is the, uh, a gang, this is George Gazzone, and he's the mad professor of our university. That's when I realized what was happening. Um, so they've always left me alone. They never said, man, what's the shit they're teaching these guys? And, you know, you turn out these kids with the sound, and that's why I stayed. That is so beautiful. I was going to ask you about that. Did you, so you, there was never any kind of, because um, I could see it at a, it's funny because when you first got to Berkeley outside of North Texas and, maybe a school in California, there were no music, there were no jazz programs. And now every school has some kind of music program, but I could see some of the more uptight sort of classical 
institutions giving Brother Garzon a lot of flack for teaching your 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 oh, your man. Yeah, but you know what? Here's a point. Teaching this triadic approach, major triads, half step in between, minor, augmented, diminished, don't repeat the inversion, but in half steps, the people that really understood it were the classical folks. Really? See, really? They devoured, they devoured it, Jake, because they had the mentality from studying classical. Okay, you want major triads? I had this girl, she played uh, cello. I said, okay, who could do this? No one would put their hand up. It was half jazz, half classical. This girl says, I think I can do it. I said, oh, can you play uh, major triads and half step in between? Don't repeat your version. Can you mix them together? I said, wow. And that's when I realized that the classical people had the concept of how to put this together. In fact, I used to go head-to-head with the classical saxophone teachers because these kids wanted to learn jazz. But I had to change their armature because they had a folded bottom lip. Wow. So wow. These teachers used to call me screaming, what are you doing to my student? I'm teaching them how to play correctly. Hello? Exactly. You know? Get, come well, on. I mean, in, the, in the sense of jazz, classical is different, but you can't have that closed down sound because in jazz you're going to be open, you know? But they were cool. Later you know, let me, let me, out. can I, I just, this is important though, like going back to, I just, you know, Rock Alam, Bob Moses introduced, by the way, I just want to send a prayer to him. I know that uh, he is not physically well but he, his soul continues to serve he's still here he's still performing he's given so much to this uh palette of sound that we've been talking about and he introduced me uh to to cg and uh i just wonder in your case i mean the vino was flowing obviously he came up during this time of hip- hippiedom with uh you know lsd was around obviously Hard drugs came into the mix. I mean, did you at a certain point seek Zen meditation in order to stay, basically say, I just remember when I interviewed McLaughlin, he was just talking about trying to reach another level of enlightenment without drugs. And that's why he got to Sri Chimnoy. A lot of the guys were seeing their friends on the side of the road, roadkill, and they wanted to stick around. Is that why you pursued Zen meditation to be able to uh, not really, Jay. I was never a heavy hanger. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't hang. My tolerance was... Uh, I, I really didn't hang hard. I was I was lightweight. Completely. No, I, you were like Joe Henderson, man. You got you finished the gig and you drove... Ever, he was called the Phantom. Everyone's like, where did he go? He, he drove back to San Francisco, dude. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't that much of a Phantom. But yeah. I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you two things. When I was 16 or 15, every Thursday night, there were two shows... This is Tom Jones, and Kung Fu was right after wow. with David Carradine. I'm watching Tom, and I was like, wow, what a great gig. I get the gig four years later. I'm watching Kung Fu, and I'm young, and while he's, you know, he's like a, a, a Chinese guy, uh, an Asian guy in Texas in the 1800s, and you know these guys come in thinking they're going to mess with him, and he tears him a new piece to him. While he's doing it, my body—I'm sitting in that chair watching, and my body's jumping. My my, you know, my 
pixels and all that. It's like I was, I was, you know, doing what this guy was doing. Right. One day, one day I'm in the car with Lovano and there was this Zen Center over the Stevie's Pizza Shop. And anyone who went to Berkeley knows Stevie's Pizza Shop. And I said, Joe, this place, I don't want to get a vibe. He said, man, why don't you just go up there? And I went up there and I met the Zen Master and that was it. When I was 28 years old. Wow. And and I, this guy was into heavy meditation and uh, moving form and more mind form, mind control, like how to keep yourself centered. And it was so great within the first six months, some of my friends, saxophone players were like, dude, what are you doing? Your shit is changing. And I didn't even know. I was like, I don't know. I'm just doing a normal thing. Come to find a year later that it was studying with this master who recently passed away. What was his name? Terrible. What was his name? Um, Chang Sik Kim. Whoa. The, the, the name of the style was Shim Gum Do, which means mind sword path. Okay, so I want to be clear about something. Like, you're talking about, was he, did he believe that there was, I mean, to me, my friends and my peers today, I mean, meditation is on the bandstand for them. It's not necessarily in a sedentary position. Was he helping you? Because it's hard to sit and still your mind, at least in the beginning, for 10, 15, 20 minutes. I mean, were you doing, did did he have an open mind as it related to, meditation he was so deep and he loved the fact that I was a musician and one night he came to the fringe and he came in and this guy was like the sun if you look up later on look up Shimgumdo in Boston (coughs) uh, I'll I'll text you yeah no text me the name I gotta look this this is is above Stevie's Pizza yeah uh, Shim Gumdo, this guy looked like the sun. Every time he came around the corner, it was like the sun was shining in your eye. And he came to the fringe. The next week I went to training. He's like, Carlo, listen, you bring your band in here. You play here. I want you to play every two weeks here. Okay, sir, just don't kill me. Right. And I bring, so I bring the fringe in. We go ancient in the, in the temple, right? Oh. And when we hit a peak, all of a sudden I hear, ah! And it's the master, and he grabs the gong, and he starts smashing it. Oh, and he my. took the, the, the music to another level. And even Lovano remembers coming down. He told me the other day, I remember coming down there, watching you work out, and then you, we did, I didn't maybe even played a gig with us. But this guy completely connected you with yourself. Oh my and god, dude. I need to do some a deep dive on this cat, man. Yeah, he was so freaking heavy. He would, this guy, he was a, I don't know how to explain it to you. There, there are no, no, when it comes to this, this is so heavy that it, there are no words. I mean, there really isn't, yeah. it's more of a, going back to Viola, you called him a mystic. What is that? Can you talk? I just want to give a little bit of props to this guy because I, I, I'm, tr- I consider myself to be uh, uh, when I turn that corner, and I'm not comparing myself at all to your teacher, but I bring I bring an aura of light to my my peers on the bandstand, and it makes them get out of their thinking mind and into the spirit mind, and uh, and you know, so Viola was a mystic in the sense of. Um, explain why well he was so heavy to be the protege of 
uh, Marcel Mule. This guy was the top cat, right. the, um, classical saxophone, quasi avant-garde. So this guy was a protege. He went to Paris and studied with him, right? Right. Um, and so for me, and again, this was before I met the Zen master, I could feel this energy coming off this guy in he was so heavy that when I was practice playing his, his book, The Chord Studies, on tenor saxophone, he would pick up the uh, oboe or bassoon <laughs> and transpose the shit while I was struggling to get through it on tenor. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is... And he would do it and, so seamlessly. Yeah. Yeah. And then he would come to the fringe and bring his wife, and he loved it. <laughs> he, loved it. he loved it. He, and he just sat there and I was like, Joe, how, how does it sound? And these reeds, these reeds, they die out of me quick. He says, well, what do you expect? You're blowing your brains out, you know? <laughs> and he, he just, like people like him, Levano Boganski, they just know what the story is. Like they can see past where you are right now. And that's what these cats said. That's right. I mean, that's right. You know, one yeah. day, going back to the Zen Master, like we all are, the Zen Master was like, okay, tonight we're going to sit around and drink beers and I'm going to tell you your future. And I'm like, damn, this is going to be great. So he tells everybody, so I'm psyched, and he goes, hey, guys, only. I'm waiting, right here it comes. Here's what you need to do just keep playing the saxophone. Right. What? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty simple. Yeah, right. It'll just but, it'll unfold for you, just continue on your path. Yeah, I mean, they don't, I, I thought it was going to be like a nuts and bolts thing about, you know, uh, you need to do this. But now I understand what he was talking about. You, uh, you, so I, I'm curious, I mean, uh, can you just talk about playing with Don Elias? I, when I saw that come up, it just, not that I ever met the guy, but, I mean, he was one of the most, uh, I mean, he. I, I just. I consider him one of the most unsung drummers and percussionists around. You know. Yeah. Well, he. I mean, I. I, I played with him because of Wolfgang Mooshville, and I think is that the record Black and Blue. Yeah, I'm try. I don't even know. It just when I was looking you up, and I that was like the. I think it was in alphabetical order, and yeah. Elias yeah. came up, and I was like, wow. I wonder if they go back to, you know, those Burton. No. Yeah. No, the people, yeah, well, that was because of Moochfield, and uh, Tom Harrell was on sure, that. Sure, sure. Alex Deutsch, some of the kids from Austria, because Moochfield knew all these people. He was with, uh, what's that, that, that label, of not, not uh, ECM back then, I think. I think, you know. So, what was the, what, what, uh, what is, what is the, so, not that I'm going to say the, because, like, like, the Zen master was like, just keep playing your horn uh it would be nice uh if what are the outside of just wanting to become famous and getting out in front of your skis before you're really ready to present yourself what are the biggest challenges facing younger cats in terms of finding their own individual sound i mean i don't care if it's berganzi or you or liebman or grossman or brecker Redmond. I mean, I was watching this thing with, uh, with you guys at a, some festival playing impressions with Dijonette on drums, 
It was like 89 or something. It was the most burning thing yep. I've ever heard. Everybody had their own sound. Yeah. Today, there's a, my, my, my take on it is we have more of a homogenization of sound. Or cats are coming out of the academy sounding like their professor. So how, how, what are the challenges to finding your own sound in, in 2024? The challenge is looking for it. People don't want to take the time to look for it because they want the quick fix. And, right. you know, it's not going to happen. I mean, this is why you're seeing less and less of because they want to be Hollywood, they want to be famous. I mean, you, you look at that, that thing you saw was actually 1998. Okay, and that was one of the biggest gigs. I, it was a turning point for me because I knew the promoter. And he, he called me a Japanese guy and he said, I want you to come and play. Okay, and it's with Liebman and Brecker. And you know, I was like, what? And I was so, not nervous, but I was like, wow, this is deep. Because I didn't even know those cats. And really? No, I didn't. I mean, I knew of them. Oh, but, oh, you didn't know them personally. Yeah, I was going to say, because it was no, uh, exactly. Christian, Mc, Christian McBride and Dave Holland on double upright bass. It was insane. Yeah. And and on the flight over, I, my knees were knocking, and I said, all right, dude, concentrate, because if you make it through this gig, you can do anything. And when I got there, these cats were so nice to me. They were so cool. In fact, on the bus ride from the hotel to the Disney World, uh, Tokyo Disney the, the Convention Center, they all get on the bus. I go down the back and sit in the, you know, the, the seat in the back, yeah. you know, that long seat. I'm by myself. Everybody gets on. Michael Brecker gets on. He says hi to all the cats. He looks in the back. He sees me by myself. He walks all the way down the back to hang with me, Jake. Oh, he gives me a hug. And no, are you kidding me, dude? Man. This is this is um, this is the American life, man. This is unbelievable. He, he he sits down to ask me about mouthpieces. Like, man, what are you? Well, you know, what are you, uh, Mike? What are you kidding? <laughs> you know, you're asking me about mouthpieces. But they were so great, and then I just did my thing and. You know, I held my own, and I was like, after an impressions, I said, poor Josh was the last solo. I said, man, you know, how's he going to do this? And he got up and he kicked ass. He was great. You know, it's funny. I got to watch his solo because I was thinking the same thing. After your solo, I'm like, okay, I'm like, I don't. I feel so bad for Not that I feel bad for him because he's an amazing player, but at that time, after having to go through, you know, Brecker, Liebman, Garzone, piano player got a solo. I'm like, poor Joshua Redmond, you know, but I guess I'm going to have to go back and. Yeah, and, he, he took care of biz. He took care of biz, you know, and he's such a beautiful. I just saw him recently with this new project he had down in Boston. And after the gig, um, he was standing there talking to everyone. And so everybody's standing around. And I look and I go, my son, my son. <laughs> and he didn't even know who I was. He gets Everybody gets freaked out like, oh, my God. I know, dude. They're like some freak, crazy maniac. <laughs> my son. <laughs> and then he looks at me. He's like, oh, my God. We start hiding shit. And people were laughing, you know. But these kids, like, I, I'm really close with everybody because, um, you know, that's the way you get the message across, and they got it. I well, mean, and you, that's, today, yeah, exactly. There's a, a lot of kids that I'm mentoring. Uh, I have this kid right now from California where he took Skype lessons for me for a year, 
And then he was working at a coffee shop. And I said, well, you know, this is my fee. No, no, I can do it. I can do it. And he worked for a year and he auditioned for Berkeley and he got a full boat, you know. And he's like taking the place over. Everybody's flipping out. Who, what's his cat's name? Isaiah Javier. He's an American kid, beautiful kid, very respectful, calls me Mr. Garzon. I want to crack him once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, you, I do. This is, you see, like, it's it's all a sonic mirror. It's all coming, you're cultivating a, a new Garzon, just back way back when, when you, you were at the track with, you know, $500 in your pocket, you know? Yo, listen. I got listen. I, can we? Are you? Can we do set two next week? I, I got to go to work, but I got a, a, so much more we got to get to. Um, I I'll be away on Saturday for a whole week. I'll be in Mexico. Oh, nice. I don't, um, I don't know if I. You want to? You want to do it the week after? Yeah. So you're the not next week, but the, I'll 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 reach out to you when you get back. Do you know when you get back? Um, I come back on the thirteenth, so I could do it. I think the 13th is a Friday. Right. I'm just peak this one set. So I could do it, you know, on the weekend. Yeah, let's, well, let's just get, I want to make sure, because no, today, so that you're, you're going next week. So you're getting back on like yeah. the 20th or something. Is that right? No, I'll be back. Actually, I'll be here. You know what would be good days? Yeah. 14 or 15. We're talking about, so you're talking about this Sunday or Monday. Is that right? No, no, a week later because wait, a minute, what the hell? You know, Sorry, you're, 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 I'm, just, I'm talking about twenty one or twenty. Let's let's shoot for twenty one. Let's a do tw- let's do let's do. I'll text you, but let's do like uh, like 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 late afternoons Eastern time, like four or five in the in the afternoon. Does that work? Perfect. All right, yo, be safe on your trip. And with so, George, I mean, I just this means as much to me for enlightenment and just on my journey than you even know. So uh, bless you, brother, and I look forward to, to meeting you in person one day, too. And where are you, where are you stationed? You're in- I'm in Tucson. I mean, I'm, you know, born in Long Island. I went to Boston University way back when, but uh, yeah. Tucson, Arizona, man. So, I mean, you and Levano, we got an amazing jazz club out here now, man. Like, it is ridiculous in the middle of – Downtown Tucson, which never had a financial district and still doesn't, we have a place called the Century Room. You know, we get Buster Williams and Lenny White coming in. I mean, whatever, man. It would be great to have you and bring yeah. the fringe down here. You know. Oh, see if you can pull it off, okay? All right, brother. Y'all, listen. Happy, right, so, uh, happy everything, Garzon. Thank you, man. All right. So, twenty-first interview, okay? Yeah, and I'll I'll hit you that day. We'll we'll set a time, but it'll be like probably like you know four or five your time. Excellent. All right. All right, my man. Hey, man. Cheers. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye bye. Yeah.